Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. It's well known that the United States spends much more than other high-income countries on healthcare. The most recent estimates from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services published in Health Affairs show that nearly a fifth of U.S. GDP is spent on healthcare services. It's perhaps somewhat less well known that health outcomes in the United States lag those of many other countries. Our life expectancy, infant mortality rates, just for example, rank well below not just other high-income countries, but many middle-income countries as well. Now, the combination of these two facts leads many to ask the question, are we getting our money's worth for all that we spend on health care? It turns out that establishing that we spend a lot and that we have suboptimal health doesn't really fully answer that question. Whether we receive value for our high levels of health spending is the topic of today's episode of A Health Podacy. I'm here with Marcia Weaver, research professor in the Department of Health Metric Sciences at the University of Washington. Dr. Weaver and co-authors published a paper in the July 2022 issue of Health Affairs examining the relationship between health spending and disease burden in the United States. They reached some, I'd call them optimistic conclusions based on the data, and we'll discuss those in more detail in today's episode. Dr. Weaver, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's my pleasure to share our research on health spending and health improvements. I'm looking forward to talking to you about this. It is a really important topic. And unfortunately, it's a very difficult one to analyze in a way that yields sort of intuitive or understandable conclusions. So uh, we are going to sort of have to walk through a little bit of the ingredients of your research before we uh, go to the findings. Why don't you, if you could, start us out with just the highest level framework? What is the question that you were setting out to answer? First, let me explain that our research builds on the work of hundreds of researchers at the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation and thousands of global disease, global burden of disease, injury and risk factor study, GBD collaborators. We used GBD 2017 data, uh, which estimated the burden of disease for 359 diseases and 195 countries beginning in 1990. We also used results from the U.S. Disease Expenditure Project, which estimated spending for 139 causes in the United States from 1996 to 2016. The disease classifications for these two studies were developed side by side, which enables us to compare spending and burden by cause or disease. So I'm going to I'm going to stop you right here because I'm so I'm so glad you started there. This is exactly the conversation I hope we would have. This research builds on a huge investment that the group at the University of Washington has made to try to understand across the world what are the burdens of different diseases so that in countries around the world and in our uh, intergovernmental organizations Uh, multilateral organizations, we can make good investments to try to reduce the burden of disease. Is that, and and so again, I'm just trying to capture sort of the line of thinking that this comes from. And most of that work has not been primarily focused on the United States. Am I, am I right? 
The, the effort is definitely to produce global estimates so that, you know, we have extensive work on malaria, which is really not a disease in the United States. Um, but we also produce uh, estimates for the United States, including county-level estimates that were just um, published and also estimates by, by um, race and ethnicity in the United States, which were actually the ones that were just published. So I'm sorry, I interrupted you, but the, 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 the reason I did is just, again, because I think in order to understand the end of this work, you have to start with this sense that it comes out of this deep, longstanding investment in trying to understand disease by disease, not just what do we spend on healthcare, not just, uh, you know, where do the dollars go, but, but what are people sick and dying of? Yes, yes. I can, I'm definitely standing on the shoulders of an impressive body of previous research. Um, and when when we use these data, we see that overall spending in 2016 was 121% higher than in 1996. And disability-adjusted life years, DALIs, which is our measure of health loss, was 21% higher, which looks like we're spending more and less healthy. So this sort of goes to what I raised in the introduction, which is we have a high, we don't have great health outcomes. We spend a lot of money. So your first inclination is to say, maybe we're not getting our money's worth, but you did, you didn't stop there. So tell us what you did. So over that same time period, the population of the United States has grown. The age and sex structure of our population has shifted to older age groups, and we face different health risks than we did in 1996. We focus on the role of the health sector by estimating the effect of changing in spending per case and changes in DALIs per case. Um, spending per case increased by 79% overall, and DALIs per case decreased by 27%. So now we see an increase in spending and an improvement in health. We should really introduce the DALI concept um, because it is so central to your analysis. Um, so say a little bit more about what a DALI is and why that's important in understanding healthcare effective, spending effectiveness. A DALI is a measure of health loss that combines mortality and morbidity. It's the sum of years of life lost and years lived with disability. A years of life loss measures premature mortality. Previously, a disease might be characterized by how many people died from it. Premature mortality is a better descriptive statistic because we all die eventually. We count the years between the age of a death and the life expectancy at that age, which would be 69 years when a 20-year-old dies and 13 years when an 80-year-old dies. Years lived with disability measures morbidity. It's the number of cases living with a disease or injury, I'll just say disease, multiplied by the disability weight for that disease. There are some nuances, like there's a range of levels of severity for a disease and disability weights for each of those levels of severity and another nuance is whether or not a case is measured by incidence or prevalence. We use whichever measure has the best data. And just as you're introducing these topics, you know, we've published papers uh, recently on uh, that, that raise some questions about the use of qualies, which are different than dal dalies, but, but 
are cut from the same cloth. These are standardized measures that don't get into the nuance of individual people's valuation of their lives, and they've been criticized for that, but they serve a really important role when you're doing population analytics. Can you just describe a little bit more why you need to use a measure like this to do the analysis that you did? One advantage of a DALI over a quali is a year of life lost is a, is a year. Like it doesn't, it's not a lower amount if someone with a chronic disease design dies as opposed to a healthy person. So we don't have that um, kind of undervaluing that's a, so that can sometimes be associated with a quality. Um, and then uh, when people are alive, um, it is an effort to try to quantify the effects of uh, disease. I, I think the criticism that it's based on kind of community assessments as opposed to the people with living with the condition still stands. Right. So it doesn't have to be a perfect measure. You're trying to standardize so that we can compare across diseases in a, over time. And at any kind of standardization like that is going to lose some nuance, but it also facilitates comparison, which is a lot of what you're trying to do here. Um, so again, I keep interrupting you uh, because I want to make sure we all are following along. Um, but you mentioned, so the population's getting older and larger. So those factors would suggest that the burdens of disease would increase. Um, but then we spend money to try to treat those conditions. And that's where the, the benefit of the potential benefit of the spending comes in. How do we put these together to try to figure out the effectiveness of our spending? Okay, and I, I think it, I like the way you posed this question because it gets at the issue that one, basically once someone has a disease, then we start counting both the spending for that disease and the health benefits of that spending. Um, we don't address, you know, the incidence or the prevalence that led to um, someone being diagnosed or not just having the disease. So we use the term spending effectiveness to compare spending and health outcomes over time for the U.S. health sector as a whole. People are much more familiar with the concept of cost-effectiveness analysis, which generally compares the costs and health outcomes of a new intervention relative to a standard of care, often in the context of a clinical trial. Spending effectiveness estimates the combined effects of a continuum of care for a disease, um, which would reflect both technological advances, the cost effectiveness of new and existing interventions, and how well those interventions are deployed in the context of the health system. So for example, for breast cancer, spending effectiveness combines advances in treatments with dissemination of those advances and access to screening and early detection. You've now given me a picture of how we understand whether or not after someone's diagnosed, the spending that the health sector makes on that condition is effective. And now we need to start asking the question, okay, we've got a huge healthcare system. We've got lots of different diseases and conditions. How would we actually compare or how would we come to understand the relative effectiveness 
of our spending in one area versus another and the overall effectiveness of our healthcare spending. Those are questions I'm going to ask you after we take a short break. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Marsha Weaver about effectiveness of healthcare spending in the United States. Uh, before the break, we went into a lot of detail about how we even think about these questions, what kind of data you can use, what kind of measurements are available, all really important uh, foundational questions to understand this concept. But now I want to get into the results because, as I said at the outset, I'd say overall, you paint a pretty optimistic picture about the value of our spending. So I think in order to make sense of that, it is helpful, as you did right before the break, to actually look at a couple of examples of conditions, because the health system's so big, the conditions people have are so varied. But if you think about a condition, we can sort of think, well, how has, how has incidence changed? And how has treatment changed? And how much are we spending on it? And I, I think if we have a couple of those examples in front of us, we can probably make more sense of this. So I wonder if you could, uh, as we're now back, uh, just spend a, a moment giving uh, our listeners a couple of examples so that, that this has a little bit more meaning. For the health sector overall, we spent $114,000 per DALI averted, and we saw a wide range of effects across diseases. Let's start with a success story. There was a 27% decrease in spending per case for breast cancer, a 12% increase in DALI's averted per case. So the U.S. actually spent less per case for breast cancer in 2016, and the health of people with breast cancer improved relative to 1996. Other success stories would be ischemic heart disease, or sometimes called coronary artery or heart disease that can lead to a heart attack, a myocardial infarction. Their um, spending per case increased by 17%, and DALI's averted per case increased by 32%. That comes to $7,000 per DALI averted. And just to be clear, uh, you want a low number of cost per DALI averted, which are basically, that's sort of your measure of effectiveness, is that, that uh, we only had to spend this much to save a, a, a year's worth of, of life, and um, that's the less we have to spend to save a year's worth of life, the better. Is that, that how, is that the right way to think about it? Exactly. It's like unit cost pricing at the grocery store where lower is better. <laughs> Never thought of it that way, but I like that. <laughs> I like that image. Um, at the other end of the range, we estimated a 260% increase in spending per case for anxiety disorders and a tenth of a percent increase in DALI's averted. The spending effectiveness ratio was more than $13 million per DALI averted. And um, I think that sort of the source of my optimism is, you know, let, let's start with a measure. Let's start with a uh, dashboard and then, you know, look at how we can improve spending effectiveness for something like anxiety disorders in the United States. And this metric will allow us to track those improvements of either less expensive treatments or more effective ones. And just to go back to something you said earlier, this is after the condition is diagnosed. So if we're investing in prevention, how does that show up in these numbers here? 
let's see. So it's 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 either diagnosed or exists. Like these are population best based estimates. So someone could have an anxiety dis we would estimate sort of the prevalence of anxiety disorders, regardless of whether or not that some person had sought treatment. So if, if we made a major investment in this country in primary prevention and truly reduce the incidence of a disease, um, how would that play out in our estimates of the effectiveness of spending on the disease? Would that be in the equation at all, or are those people just sort of not part of the picture? Okay. So an expenditure in, um, say, uh, smoking cessation would be incorporated in our estimates. An expenditure in screening for uh, cancer would also be incorporated in our estimates. Um, something like a expenditure on vaccines are not included in our estimates, um, often because that's delivered in the context of a uh, well care visit, which is a separate category. Um, but to the extent that that vaccine um, reduce the severity of illness, which we see kind of um, most recently with COVID, where it doesn't eliminate infection in many cases, but reduces the severity, that would be captured in our estimates. Of course, our data are from 2016, so we, we don't have any of those COVID effects. And in the paper, you use some thresholds that, that are, they can be a little confusing out of context, but I'm hoping in this conversation we can put them in context. Um, this notion, and then this comes up a lot also in the, in the comparative effectiveness, this notion of is there sort of a socially accepted threshold of spending that we consider to be worth it to avert a dally, and where you set that number has a big effect on whether or not you think your spending overall is worth it. So can you say a little bit about how as a society, if we're trying to judge the the values, obviously, if it's a thousand dollars for a year, no one's going to disagree. And if it's twenty million for a year, people might ask questions. But what does the literature tell us about how we tend to value Dali? One of the direct implications of this research is the construction of an outcome-adjusted healthcare index. Um, we're familiar with price indexes, such as you know the price of gasoline. Um, there's a standard unit of a price per gallon, and we've all seen that price per gallon increase by a couple dollars over the last year. So the challenge with healthcare is that we measure prices per hospital stay or uh, kind of unit of service rather than prices per unit of outcome. So if we're looking at the price of a hospital stay, well, of course the price has increased in the last 21 years, but hospital stays have also become more procedure intensive so that the prices and the units are both changing and we don't really have, it's hard to have a common denominator. An exciting thing about this uh, research is that the DALI gives us a common denominator across years as well as across diseases. So we were able to estimate an outcome-adjusted healthcare price index where we assign a dollar value to the increases in DALIs averted over time. We did rely on the literature for what value to assign to a DALI. We, um, for example, if we use $100,000 per DALI averted, 
we would conclude that the overall price of healthcare increased about 4% more than the economy overall. Um, if we didn't account for the value of health improvements, we'd say that prices increased by 76%. So that's a big difference in how we view changes in prices in the health sector. That $100,000 comes from sort of a consensus among cost-effectiveness researchers. And, you know, the consensus is that it could be $50,000, $100,000, $150,000, $200,000, but probably not $13 million. I would like to think that this research suggests that having a single number for all causes could be revisited. Um, I, I like to use the analogy of uh, sort of construction costs. In the United in um, Seattle area, it costs about $80 per square foot to build a parking garage and $800 per square foot to build a hospital. And if we said that the average price construction in the Seattle area was $400 per square foot, we'd have a lot of people building parking garages for $400 per square foot and no hospitals. And sort of the same could be extended to diseases now that we recognize that diseases are sort of fundamentally different in the available technology and the challenge of treating them. So that we could say, well, you know, if it's $36,000 per dahlia averted for diabetes, any new innovations need to be either less expensive or more effective. If we use an average, like $100,000 per daily averted, you know, people are going to be more than happy to triple the cost of insulin. We want to have a system of thresholds that encourages innovation, but also um, preserves the benefit of, of past advances. Well, that's really fascinating. I'm so glad you described it this way. So it suggests sort of a, a benchmark of performance disease by disease which is very different than sort of asking the overall question, do we get our money's worth in healthcare? And it suggests, as you said, that as we're thinking about the next uh, opportunity for treatment, the next innovative approach, that we need to evaluate that approach against the existing approaches for that condition, not just uh, against some numeric benchmark, which, which is, I think, where people get nervous that sort of uh, uh, assigning these values could actually choke off innovation. Here, you're just trying to get improvement against whatever the base happens. Yeah, we basically want people to do better. Well, as we uh, wrap up our conversation here, you've, you've sort of foreshadowed this, but, you know, we're a policy journal. These are really important uh, pieces of data, but the question is sort of what to do with them. One answer is what you just indicated, which is that perhaps our reimbursement policies could be tied uh, or at least make reference to sort of a benchmark of where we are. Um, but maybe I would ask at the end where I started us, which is uh, we do have a large debate in this country about the level of healthcare spending overall, and there are lots of suggestions and proposals for ways to rein that in. I'm not going to necessarily, unless you want to, ask you to weigh in on those policies, but I do wonder what you feel out of your work uh, the implications are for the overall debate about levels of healthcare spending. 
you know, I would love to see more research on an outcome adjusted healthcare price index. We're now at a position where we have these comprehensive data where we can start to see some real progress in creating an outcome adjusted price index, uh, not for the health sector overall, as well as for individual causes or, or diseases. Well, that would be a very different place than we are right now. So I'm uh, excited to see uh, how we take these data and move in in a direction. Uh, your comment about sort of the market basket and uh, and and having some standardized measures, which are completely absent in most of healthcare, uh, anything that moves us in the direction of being able to understand and compare would would be progress. Uh, Dr. Weaver, thank you so much for the paper, for the work that went into it, for helping me and our listeners understand the complex question you are trying to answer um, and for helping us understand the importance of this work. Thank you so much for being my guest on Health Policy. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.